Welcome, everybody, to the Tilted Lawyer Podcast. This is Omar Serrato, and this morning, which we never record in the morning, but we are today, we're going to be talking about Corey Richens, the lady who is suspected of murdering her husband and then writing a children's book about it uh, to help her sons grieve through the loss of their father. We're going to be going for about an hour, hour and a half or so, but it's, you're going to want to strap in. we got a lot to talk about. Let's get started. What's up, everybody? I'm Omar Serrato, experienced and practicing attorney, fierce litigator, and unofficial commentator on the most popular legal issues of the day. I'm the host of the Tilted Lawyer podcast, joined by Eliana Colon Rosa and the TLP crew, where we break down the human aspects of law that everybody wants to talk about. I've been a practicing attorney for many years, but nothing in this show is or should be taken as legal advice. We're not going to pull any punches. We might even get a little bit dirty, but we want you to join us anyway. Well, we are not joined by Ileana Clone Rosa because of medical issues. We are joined by a special guest of the show who has appeared before. It is um, my brother, or who is otherwise known in my circles as the resident gay. He is the gay. <laughs> and um, welcome, Chris. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. We're talking about um, Corey Richens today. And, um, well... I know that you know all about her because I told you that we're talking about her on the show, but she um, has just come up on the radar with the media within the last couple of months because she is suspected of poisoning her husband by way of Moscow Mule, which is an alcoholic whiskey beverage. It's made with ginger, ginger and um, a couple of other things. Um, but she poisoned and allegedly killed her husband and um, wrote a child's book about it, about how to grieve the loss of your father. And then she went on television to promote, to promote the book. And after she did all of that, unbeknownst to her, the entire time she had been under investigation uh, with Utah law enforcement for many months, they finally cracked the code or what they believe is the code. And they have launched or filed charges. And she's sitting in a prison cell right now um, fighting off, and what's going to be a lengthy uh, legal process to determine whether or not she's guilty of what they said that she did. So what do you know about uh, Miss Richens from your extensive research from last night? Nice YouTube. Thanks, YouTube. Uh, all I know about her is that uh, they met when she worked at Home Depot. He came from a more wealthy family, established business, hard worker, they got married. They have three sons. Blah, blah, blah. Opinions. Blah, blah, blah. Opinions. What yeah. is your opinion? The facts. We're going to get into all the facts. But um, what do you think about this lady? You said that you thought that she was um, an attractive young lady. And uh, you were saying stuff. Yeah. she's. Um, she seems disingenuous. I think that this book was kind of a... Um, I think it's a tool to make her feel better at night. Did you time. watch the, the interview? A mm, little... Tiny bit. I don't think it's that long, right? Well, we're going to watch the interview. Um, she It was like a six-minute seg segment on Good Morning Utah or something like that on ABC4's um, Good Morning or Good Things Utah. I forgot the, the actual name of it. But she she reached out to the television saying, hey, listen, um, I want to promote my book. I wrote a child's book. Um, it's about grieving the loss of a loved one. And uh, this is my story. I recently unexpectedly lost my husband. My children unexpectedly lost their father um, a few months ago. 
And in order to cope with the loss, I wrote this amazing children's book, and I'd love to come on your network to talk about it. And so then she did. And so she goes and she gives this six-minute interview, and which has been dissected by behavioral analysts uh, through and through. There's many red flags. We're going to talk about some of them. Um, the main ones being it didn't seem... Like you just said, she didn't seem very genuine. She's very robotic. She had this strange wardrobe on. It was wow, it's really weird for TV. Warm, and she's like bundled up as if it was like you know thirty Camp- degrees in camping, the yeah. studio or whatever. And she just gave this really monotone interview and this really rehearsed robotic. Which you know, to be fair, I would have just thought that she was nervous maybe because she's going on TV, but. Other behavioral analysts had other opinions. We're going to get into some of that stuff. But so let's talk about how this whole thing began. Eric Richens, who was the gentleman who's now deceased, he was a contractor. Um, He, by all accounts, was this good guy. Liked to joke around a lot. He was like, um, I don't know. He was just very personable. Had some good, had good social skills. He was a frequent customer at the Home Depot where he faithfully met Corey Richens when she was working as a cashier. Now, we talked about um, a lot of the discussions in the center around, oh, she's so attractive, which, to be honest with you, I've seen many pictures of her now, you know, looking at it. I don't see, you know, the beauty queen. Maybe for a Utah Home Depot, I suppose, like we were saying. Um, But by all accounts, she was, I guess, the toast of the town in her small town where she lived. And Eric had taken a liking to her. And she was the subject of many men's affection. And um, she was just perceived to be this, uh, this catch. So they were flirting. Um, He was this charismatic. She... Okay, to be fair to her, I will say this about her. Even in her interview, even whatever you think about her being nervous or what you believe her to be, she at the very least has a charismatic personality where if you didn't know her or you were to see her, say, I don't know, at the club or at a lounge or, you know, at a church, jovial, um, she had a magnetic personality. Same as this guy, Eric. They kind of magnetized together and uh, formed a relationship and a bond um, while she was working as a cashier. She's a natural beauty. It's a beautiful face. She didn't have to do anything Explain much. Explain what you mean. Natural, natural beauty. beauty. A couple of photos that I saw of her, like her hair is a few curls in her hair. A little bit of makeup went really far from her. She's a, to me, she's just a gorgeous, gorgeous natural beauty. Him, he's like a, uh, an outdoorsy Ed Sheeran. Like he's a likable guy. <laughs> You know, he's an outdoorsy person. He does archery. How could you he's call him Ed Sheeran if he doesn't have any hair? <laughs> I don't know. He was wearing a hat. But he was all about his kids. He's just, um, you know, I could see how he would, you know, think that she was hot, nice, helpful. I mean, it's her job to be helpful. So I'm not even saying that she wasn't attractive. I'm just saying they were, they were talking about her as if she was like beauty queen level um, you know, toast of the town, which maybe she was in, uh, in, in Utah, in that small town where she was. Um, but yeah, I mean, she, was, she wasn't unattractive, for sure. And the guy was not an unattractive guy. Um, I, don't, I, never, I never made the connection between him and Ed Sheeran. 
but I'll take your word for that. (laughs) I thought Ed Sheeran had, um, like, uh, he he has, like, moppy hair, doesn't he? I just saw him on the the Howard Stern show. Yeah, he's not much of a looker. I mean, he's more of a... Well, he's a singer. He's a singer. Yeah, and and he gets women anyway. It's just how it works. Yeah, I mean, he's like... Just an average, uh, nice guy, outdoorsy guy, and she's a beautiful girl. Well, Corey was widely regarded as one of the most beautiful girls, capturing the attention of numerous young men. And Eric, um, having experienced the emotional and financial toll, he had had gone through a divorce prior to meeting her. Um, He was married to a lady named Julie Jorgensen um, in his early 20s. You know, it was one of those, he he got married too young. And um, as you know, um, as I am an active practicing family law attorney, if you decide to get married prior to your 25th birthday, you're going to have a bad time because the chemistry behind that is that your brain is not really fully formed until you're about 26, 27 years old. So you're not really set in your personality. You're not really set in who you're going to be, your goals, your wants, your desires. So if you get married at 23 by 27, you're going to be a different person. And even if you're not a different person, it's not guaranteed who you are at 23. Matter of fact, I'd almost say that it's guaranteed who you are at 23, 22 is not who you're going to be at 27. So this guy, he gets married at a young age to this lady and ends in divorce inevitably. And so here he is. He's... um. He, he's living the single life and he goes about meeting Corey and uh, he is infatuated with her. Uh, he eventually works up the courage to go ask her out on a date. Um, they quickly bonded. They become inseparable. And um, Eric was known by all accounts for this is the way people talk that describe him. He had this infectious laugh. Um, he was one of those guys that just was always giving genuine generosity Um, Corey was described as being sweet, intelligent. Um, Their relationship appeared to marry, well, I mean, if you were to look at them and put them together in a room, say, oh, yeah, that makes sense, them being together. So they go on a date, they start dating, and um, this is their background. As you were mentioned, um, were mentioning earlier to me before the show started, um, Eric was born in 1982, May 13th. He was the eldest child of Gene and Linda Richens. Um, he had a couple of younger sisters, Katie and Amy. Um, he grew up in the in the small village of Summit County, Utah. His family held a prominent presence, owning a huge, picturesque ranch uh, that would later transform into a cherished conservatory for their community. Um, and their impact was so profound that they had buildings named after the Richens family. So they were a big deal. They were known throughout the community. Um, during his formative years, Eric displayed remarkable prowess in sports. He, um, had instilled upon him values of hard work for his contributions on the family ranch. Um, he was a part of the LDS Mormon church. Uh, like many young Mormon men, he went on and embarked on a two year mission as they, you know, they do They come and knock on your door mm-hmm. and share their faith with you and all of those things. Um, by the way, have you ever opened your door to one of the LDS people when they knocked on your door? Yeah, definitely, yeah. And what was the result? Uh, uh, welcoming them, telling them that they're doing a good job, and have a nice day. Usually busy. Well, that's not very. <laughs> Encourage them to keep going. I've had deep conversations with people from the LDS Mormon Church, inviting them to my home. 
They are some of the nicest, most genuine people. Certainly, yeah. I Thank always you. reference when I talk about the Mormons, the Mormon religion, uh, the that, that South Park episode that kind of <laughs> does like a, a synopsis about their beliefs, which I know that it's... Um, I know that it's played up for television on South Park, you know, and they, they do a lot of stuff just to be funny, but it's true. They're very genuine, just sweet and nice people. They're literally offering, hey, I'll come and talk, take out your trash. I'll do your dishes. I'll do all of this stuff. Dang, really? Maybe and, I should invite them in. Well, I invited them in, and then we shared, you know, we had coffee. We talked for many hours about their beliefs on religion. Um, Dad had other a stories. Different story about, about that. <laughs> he had different stories about, <laughs> uh, which we don't have to get into. It was the 70s. They were high. But anybody doing a grassroots <laughs> anything, you got to give them respect. I mean, they're p- pounding the pavement, doing something for sure. some mission. That's, there's good intentions behind that. The, the point is, um, not their religious beliefs. It's just the, just the fact that it jives with his character as being this hardworking, charismatic guy. Yeah. You know, now he's you know hitting the pavement and he's knocking on doors for the sole purpose when he was younger of sharing his faith with people. He believes, whether or not you believe it or not, uh, that he found some answers to the universe and he wanted to share them with people. And he was willing to sacrifice his dignity. He was willing to put himself out and gamble that he wouldn't, you know, be harmed in the process of sharing his faith. And he, you know, went on this two-year mission and did what he had to do. So at any rate, um, <clears throat> after his mission, he enrolled at the University of Utah he earned a bachelor's degree in international studies with a minor in Spanish. He probably spoke better Spanish than I, you or I. Um, and although his first marriage uh, to Julia didn't endure, um, he ended up uh, starting a business with his business partner, Cody Wright. Um, they founded a masonry company called C&E Masonry. And if you didn't know, um, if you happen to have an inroads to the masonry industry, it is extremely lucrative if you know the right people and you have the right assets. Um, but they built uh, the CNE Masonry Company. They they built it from the ground up. And um, his passions outside of work, he found solace in hunting. Um, he was an, an off roader, mo- motorcycles, four wheelers, that kind of thing. Um, they those that knew him considered him to be a reliable pillar of support. He was always willing to lend a hand. And above all, he treasured family above everything else. Yeah, that's and definitely if, clear. I mean, he was a coach in his, what, a soccer coach for his kids. Yeah. He but, said he would not get a divorce because of his kids. 100%. He was the type that I'm going to stay in a bad marriage for the sake of the children. Yeah. He coached a phenomenal father by all accounts um, from Corey's side and from Eric's side. Uh, but, yeah, that was him. That was who he was. So... Corey, on the other hand, very similar, charismatic person, personality. Uh, She was born in 1990. I used to think that uh, people born in 1990 were so young. (laughs) (laughs) Yet here they are, they're now in their 30s. Um, She was a bit younger than Eric, uh, about eight years younger, which, um, I don't know, when I was a single man, I used to have a cutoff. Um, When I was 30, I would not date anybody younger than 25. And there was very obvious reasons for that. It had nothing to do with anything other than what am I going to talk about with you? Yeah. Like, what do we have to talk about? And then the one time where I broke my own rule, I was 32 and I dated somebody that was 25. I was like, oh my God, I am so bored. (laughs) What am I doing with my life? (laughs) 
but at any rate, she was eight years younger than him, and it worked out for a while. Uh, she, her parents were Elisa and Ronald Darden. Um, they chose to name her Corey as a way to preserve the family name. Um, we don't know a whole lot about her childhood, but there was uh, there was some instances of alcoholism in their family. There was a history of multiple DUIs and charges related to public intoxication associated with her father. Um, her dad actually passed away in 2010. He was 57 years old, um, rendering him unable to accompany his daughter down the aisle when she got married to Eric a few years later. Um, and despite these challenges, uh, Corey mirrored Eric's strong work ethic. She had a lot of, um, she had various different jobs. She wasn't just a Home Depot girl. She was doing various other things. Um, she uh, worked in a housekeeping business. She had a design company that she started. She worked in a hospital as a volunteer uh, for a certain period of time. She found herself at Home Depot when she met Eric, and that led him, you know, of course, to them crossing paths. Um, she pursued an education. She got a bachelor's degree in healthcare administration from Weber University, which is in Utah. Um, she further pursued an academic master's degree um, in human resources from Utah State. I'm not sure if I could think of a, you know, I have a pretty useless degree in business administration. Um, human resources <laughs> as a bachelor's degree, I just don't feel like it's required for the job. But yet that's, you know, they sell those kinds of degrees at universities nowadays. Um, I don't know if I'm hiring a human resources person. I saw somebody with a human resources degree. I mean, that's cool. But I think I'd be more interested in somebody that got like a philosophy degree or um, a psych degree or I don't know, something that just showed that you had interest um, in the human endeavor. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you'd be surprised. There's some, there's a HR is a really good degree. There's a lot to know there. There is a lot of psychology and maybe some philosophy and HR. There really What's is. the philosophy in HR? Oh, gosh. Like, you have to improve employee morale. People have to be acknowledged. They have to be heard. They have to be protected. There's a lot of things. So what philosophers would you draw upon to improve employer morale? Well, Are we going to quote Nietzsche? Are we going to go into some Descartes? Uh, knowing if somebody's full of shit is priceless. I mean, well... You don't have to read Descartes. No, somebody's <laughs> foolish. <laughs> but I, your point is well taken. So anyway, getting back to the point. So seemingly perfect romance, regular, you know, ideal, what, you, what your ideal vision of a young relationship evolving into marriage would be. Then comes the prenuptial agreement which was key. So I write prenuptial agreements regularly. There is a process to it. There's a way to do it so that everybody's on an even playing field so that nobody's put under any pressure to sign something that they're not sure that they should sign. But here was the circumstances of the prenup. The prenuptial agreement was presented to the couple on their wedding day. Which is a lot of pressure. It's like, hey, it's your wedding day, but sign this or we're not getting married. On the wedding day, that's... It seems like something that maybe uh, he was advised to do. Well, his know, mom like, told him to do it, naturally. Yeah. So here's what happened. So they get married. They're engaged. They're, they're married in 2013. Um, a prenuptial agreement was proposed by Eric's mom. And it was a protective gesture because he had already had one failed marriage. 
Um, it was intended to safeguard his assets, of which there were a significant amount of assets because his family was wildly successful. Uh, there was the masonry business. Uh, there was his other holdings, stuff that he had inherited. So on the day of their wedding, right before the ceremony, Eric's mom, Linda, goes up to Corey, presents her with a prenuptial agreement, and says, here, sign this. And you have to assume, it's like, well, what if I say no? Well, then you're not going to get married. How do you think that that conversation went? Damn. Like, okay, so you're about to get, let's just imagine... You are about to get married, and you haven't had any discussion. Let's just assume no discussions. Let's assume, hey, think a prenup's a good idea? A few months ago, you had this talk. Yeah, maybe, but, you know, you forgot about it because who cares? You know, it's a boring conversation. Let's, let's put on the next episode of Succession or whatever. <laughs> and so they are there, and she's in her wedding dress. Linda, per- perfect name linda presents her with this prenuptial agreement says here sign this or my son won't marry you i don't know if that's what the specific conversation was and then she says sign it if somebody puts you in that scenario what would you do uh, i just i'd be caught off guard i'd be uh, hurt offended like what the fuck come on what it's the wedding day well let me tell you what's usually in a prenup it's usually a waiver of your rights as it pertains to community property the prenuptial agreements that i draft usually include provisions to terminate rights to spousal support in the event of a divorce yeah they are they usually terminate rights into each other's assets separate property retirement accounts sometimes they include provisions where income or assets or houses or other things or other assets would be generally community property or waiving your rights into property. And what is that worth? It could be potentially worth millions and millions of dollars. And here, review this, sign it. And I'm sure she gave some general description of what she thought it was. Here, this means just means that everything is yours and everything is his. Sign it. But what you're supposed to do, okay. In the state of California, and not even in the state of California, <clears throat> general contract law, there's something in law called restatements. The way that I learned contract law, every state has their own statutes for contracts, but the restatements attempt to be a synopsis or a summary of what the general principles are of contract law. So it's to take everything all together and say that this is what we generally believe in America. And it starts off, what is a contract? Well, a contract is a promise, you know. Uh, between two people that is uh, justified through consideration and there's an ascension to an offer and acceptance of an offer and all of these things, right? And then they define what is an offer. Well, an offer is is a promise to do a thing that is so made to a person to suggest that you're going to follow through and, you know, they go on and on. But in the restatements, and I'm saying this because this is Utah law that they're going to have to go through. In California, usually if you want a prenuptial agreement to be ironclad, Number one, it takes many months of planning, a prenuptial agreement. Number two, the person that is presented with a prenuptial agreement should have an opportunity for at least seven days to sit with the agreement, the full executed agreement, and get her own legal counsel. So, hey, what does this mean? I fully agree. What am I signing away? If you do all of that, and the prenuptial agreements that I draft include all those things, I will have the, the couples come in. What do you guys want to say in this agreement? And do you know that if you say this, that this is the effect? I was like, okay, so understand that I'm not representing you. I'm representing him or I'm representing her. 
and you're going to want to take this to another lawyer, make sure this is actually what you want to do, uh, because technically I represent him. And then they go and take it to a separate attorney, and they review it, and then there's usually a separate addendum to the prenuptial agreement that says that I got my own separate legal counsel, and that's how we defeat uh, the defense to a contract that, well, I signed this under duress, or I didn't know what I was signing, or uh, I was um, pressured into signing whatever, which would have been the case here. 100%. She's sitting there in a wedding dress and you're presenting a prenuptial agreement. I'm getting rid of that prenuptial agreement 100 times out of 100 if it becomes a matter of dispute in a family law case. I don't know about Utah, but if I'm looking at those facts and I'm trying to invalidate a prenuptial agreement 100 times out of 100, there's no way you're going to tell me that you're sitting there in a wedding dress about to get married in a couple of hours and, oh, here's a prenup, sign it. And that's going to be um, considered anything but undue influence, undue duress, which is an absolute defense to the signing of a contract. So whether or not the prenuptial agreement is valid or not doesn't matter. Those were the circumstances in what the prenup was presented to uh, Corey and how it was signed. So some of the details. The prenup stipulated that neither Corey nor Eric would have any rights to each other's current or future income or assets in the event of a divorce. What does that mean? Usually when you get married, 50 cents of every dollar you make belongs to your spouse. That's how it is. Oh, you make $100,000 a year? Well, 50000 of that belongs to your spouse. It also applies to debts. You got a tax bill for $25,000 during marriage. Well, half of that is owed by your spouse. We split everything down the middle. But this specific provision means that, well, whatever I make is mine, whatever you make is yours, and that's just how it's going to stay. Which, by the way, if you choose not to get married, you could just do that. And just that would be the, that's how that goes. (laughs) Which would be an extreme argument against um, getting contractually married to somebody. But, hey, um, I am a married man, and that's just, you know. This girl wishes that she would (laughs) have just looked at invalidating her prenup instead of going through all that trouble of, Try to poison her husband a few times. Well, uh, you know, there's the influence of outlaws, outlaws, in-laws. Mm. And um, I don't know if, knowing what I know about Eric, if he would have been the one to present the prenuptial agreement to uh, his fiancée. But mom was being protective, and she said, no, you're going to have to get this done. You got, you're worth way too much to just haphazardly go through a divorce and... I think that it's just going to be okay. Which it's just you know more about that dynamic. I can't wait for that lifetime movie or something. Oh, it's coming out because they actually <laughs> physically fought after the death of. Well, we're going to get into all that, right? So here's this other provision: if either one of them were to pass away, the surviving spouse would inherit the deceased spouse's assets. Which is weird because it's like, okay, everything that you make is yours. Everything that I make is mine. But if I die, you get all of my shit. That's basically what that provision is saying, which incentivizes the death of the spouse. Because in real property law, if you purchase a house with a spouse um, or a significant other, whatever, and you put on title that you guys are joint tenants with the right of survivorship, that's basically what that means. It means that, okay, you guys are both owners of the house, But whoever survives, if one of you passes away, then the other party gets your half. So while you guys are both living, you don't have any rights to, say, devise your half of the property to your children or to whoever. There's no ability to do that because 
of the joint tenancy. But when you die, the surviving spouse gets the whole. So this is just setting that basic structure up in the entirety of their assets, income, all that stuff. Which, now that she's being suspected of murdering her husband, uh, paints a really nicely framed motive for why she would do such a thing. So one of the things that was protect, protected in the uh, prenuptial agreement was uh, Eric's share of c and masonry business. Remember that he had a business partner who also owned a share. Um, but at the time, it was valued at about $2.5 million. Um, that was included in the assets uh, that was covered in the prenup. In addition, um, Eric had des- designated Corey and his business partner, Cody, as beneficiaries of his life insurance policy and that's significant because later he changed that without her knowing about it. Um, but that arrangement ensured that if Eric were to die, Cody was going to utilize life insurance payout uh, to acquire Eric's portion of the business. Mm-hmm. But that couldn't happen because he wrote her out of the life insurance policy. She didn't know about it until after he was dead. So um, getting into their... By the way, kudos thoughts. to the insurance company for saying, hey, by the way, you remember uh, uh, changing this into your wife's name, this insurance policy? Why is it kudos to them? Because they're the ones that uh, let him know that that change was made. She changed the insurance policy from him to her. And then the insurance policy said, hey, you did this, <laughs> right? And he said, why? No, I did not. Yeah, well, and then he changed it back. It's it's funny when you do stuff like that. I don't know. I get real funny about life insurance policies, man. Mm-hmm. Like you're basically putting a bounty on your head. So, okay, if you have a life insurance policy to protect your family, right? Let's say you got a million dollar insurance policy. That means if you die, your wife gets a million dollars. So it's 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 a risky business. Make sure you're doing that, um, in in making sure that. You understand uh, that you have now placed a bounty on your head for a million dollars. Everything's all peachy cream now. It's weird listening to stuff like that. I was listening to this guy talk about, yeah, my wife's, oh, yeah, I pay this for my wife's insurance policy. This is for mine. If she died, I could live for five years, work nothing. I was like, oh, jeez. I'll tell you what, man. Uh, Marriage is, it's not all peaches and cream. You know, there is, you got kids. And um, our Ashley has like five, you know, <laughs> and your your whole life becomes raising children. You know, when you got married, it, it was a, I don't want to talk about Ashley's marriage. I'm talking about my own. I got kids. Kudos for all you guys for having all the kids. Yeah. It gets hard when you raise kids. It's, it's no, the focus is no longer on all the romance of the marriage and all of that kind of, kind of stuff. It's about um, building a life, which is not always... Um, Sitting in Cancun on vacation. Sometimes you got to get dirty in the mud. And that's exactly what happens when you have kids. And that's not so romantic. And then people become disenfranchised with that or disenchanted with that. And then the benefit of an insurance payout, oh, man, if only he was dead, I could get $2 million. And then I could uh, ship my parents off, or my parents, my children off to the parents and go uh, (laughs) start a new life in wherever, Greece. Or wherever you, yeah, it's a weird, whatever. it's a weird dark topic for sure. It's but just as we- it's smart, also for you know leaving your family behind. It's smart if you have a solid foundational marriage that is successful, that is founded on the principles of building and maintaining and sustaining a family. Of course, yep. it's it's what you have to do. But when you enter into a marriage, you got to make 
doubly sure that, hey, the, the cute Home Depot girl from way back when is not going to somehow uh, flip the script on me and decide to just try to steal all of my shit, which is what happened with Eric <laughs> and which is why he's dead. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> no, he's not allegedly dead. He's definitely dead. But allegedly murdered by Corey, yeah. right? So um, following the wedding, Eric and Corey, they appear to be living this enviable life together. Corey embarks on uh, her own entrepreneurial journey by establishing a real estate company. Um, she had this keen ability to close deals for lavish properties in Utah, which uh, they used to go on this venture to own multiple properties and flip, renovate and flip properties for profit, right? But she encountered legal troubles. Uh, there was a couple that sued them. Allegedly, the, she had misled them about the condition of the home. There's mold in the house, undisclosed issues in real estate, blah, 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 whatever. There was a lawsuit. I'm not, I'm not even sure what happened with that. But despite that setback, uh, they were married for nine years. Uh, Corey and Eric, they, they had uh, three sons, Carter, Ashton, and Weston. And uh, as of 2022, uh, they were nine, seven, and five. Which is, man, I mean, the five-year-old is just exiting toddler stage. The nine-year-old is about to go into preteen stage. And, uh, well, now father is gone. And guess what? Now mother is gone because she's sitting in a jail cell. I'm not even sure what's become of the children at this point. I'd imagine uh, one of the grandparents are, are watching them. Um, Eric, he was an exceptional, I can't talk an exceptional, he was an exceptional uh, father, devoted uh, even while managing the business, he actively coached their sports teams. Um, he cherished family time above all else, and his wife and children, they were the center of everything that he did. And that was, by all accounts, family and friends. Uh, the Richens family, they appeared to possess the epitome of a perfect life. And uh, they were blessed, healthy sons. They lived in uh, beautiful homes. They owned cars, trucks. They were going on vacations. Um there was nothing that they were really without. It was this ideal picturesque um, framework of what the American dream is. What else are you looking for? I got a beautiful wife. I have a beautiful children. I have a beautiful life. What more? You know, even for Corey, I mean, what more was she really looking for? Yeah. Fast forward to 2020. Uh, there was a trip to Greece. So they go on this romantic getaway. Mm, the sandwich under the uh, they're trying to <laughs> deepen their bond or whatever. Um, but uh, Eric reaches out to his sister Amy at some point during the vacation, saying, Hey, I think Corey just tried to poison me. And Amy's like, Eric, shut up. What are you talking about? Try to poison. What do you mean, poison you? Okay, so let's just say I called you, say, hey, I'm not sure, but I think Marty just tried to poison my ass. What would you say? I would wait for the rest of the joke. Yeah. It seems like just, what are you talking about? <laughs> Shut yeah, up. Like, what, what happened? That. Did something burn in the kitchen or like, was it a, I, yeah, like, no. Hey, call what me later. I'm pulling weeds or just don't call me at all. Have fun on your <laughs> vacation. <laughs> yeah. So, right. But that was the phone call. And, but he was dead serious. So... Again, out of the blue, it's just, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure how, what's it. He started feeling sick. He had a drink. 
he's in Greece, he's on vacation, there's unfamiliarity with the ingredients there in that region of the world, and, um, you know, one would chalk it up to, if I was feeling sick, I don't know, maybe I ate something, I wouldn't just immediately jump to, oh, I've been poisoned, you know, oftentimes I joke with my wife, like, she's definitely trying to poison me, what is this, what what the hell, is, what, what am I eating right now? <laughs> Which, by the way, she's getting so she. My wife's gotten significantly. She, she's a really good cook. She's gotten significantly better since COVID. Um, she's learned how to season food now, thankfully. <laughs> um, but at at any rate, anytime I've been over there, the food's been delicious. So, it's well, that's because I've been cooking. Well, no, not really. You got better too. <laughs> I better. did get a lot better. <laughs> Tough ramen days. All right, so this was the beginning of his suspicions about. Corey was up to no good, um, despite the turbulence of that incident. Um, Eric and Corey, they return from their trip. Um, they're seemingly happy. Everything's normal. Friends and family, they attest to uh, Eric's unwavering devotion to his wife and children. And, you know, that's what he's all about. And even if Corey harbored concerns or doubts, Eric's commitment to his family would drive him to do whatever it took to keep, make their marriage work. So even though he thought that his wife was actively trying to poison him, he wasn't going to rock the boat because he didn't want to break up his home and be away from his children, as is this the story of many uh, of failed marriages um, that I've had the privilege of having to work on. Um, however, uh, as a means of uh, personal reassurance, Eric takes a step to establish a living trust in November 2020, a decision he makes without telling Corey about it. So this is where things start to change. Um, within that trust, he transfers ownership of the family home and all of his personal belongings and his share of the masonry business into this trust, and he designates his sister Katie to have full control over the trust in the event of his passing, presumably to provide himself with a sense of peace and security. Now, that's notable because, remember, in the event of his passing, she's supposed to get off all of, all of his shit, but now he's placing it in trust and full control of it to his sister, so it's going to be a little bit more difficult than that. There's And, and again, indeed, they're going through legal battles. They're going to have to sort that all out. Um, and I imagine one of the deal breakers to the contract was, well, you're not allowed to kill your spouse to collect all of their stuff. So if she's found guilty of murder, case is over, right? But if he's if she's supposed to inherit all of his belongings and that belonging is now sitting in, sitting in a trust that his sister controls, arguably there would have been a case about whether or not there was undue influence or whether or not he had breached the contract or whether or not he had breached a fiduciary duty to his spouse and not informing her of such a move in an attempt to shield um, his assets from Corey ever being have the, having the ability to collect those assets. At any rate, um, Eric's suspicion, suspicions linger. And um, in early 2022, so here's where we're getting to kind of the crux of the entire thing. 2022, they're in the house flipping business, right? She really wanted to um, purchase this lavish mansion that had went up for sale in the nearby city of Midway, which was a smallish town in Utah. Um, she was really enthusiastic about it. She wanted to flip it for a profit. She thought it was a good idea, good investment, um, Eric thought it was too expensive and too risky, and they had a disagreement about it. So in 2022, Eric is still thinking about, you know, what happened in Greece a couple of years prior. So his words resurface. He begins to suspect that his wife is plotting against him. 
Um, during that time, there was this mansion, you know, they were talking about, it was, they called it the unfinished house. Um, it was, it, it was like 20,000 square feet. It was sitting on nine acres of land. Um, there was a lot of talk among the locals. It was like this prized possession in that small village about who was going to own that property. Cause it was just, you know, it was prized real estate. Um, Corey. It's unfinished. It's unfinished. It was also considered like an eyesore. And in her eyes and in his eyes, he's a masonry. She's, you know, a business professional. Yeah. And in his eyes, he's looking at why is it unfinished? Look at all these different finishes, the foundation. He might have saw something about, like, the plumbing. She's looking at, at the, the price tag and the square footage. So there's this and there's that. Wait, she just gave me a, a sandwich in grease. She's trying to poison me. I broke out <laughs> in hives, had to use my son's EpiPen. Just, you know, if it wasn't for that, he could have died in grease. He could have, and imagine if he did. Um Maybe she gets away with it because she's on vacation. Mm-hmm. Law enforcement over there in Greece um, to prosecute a case in America. That's a dicey top, uh, subject. I'm not sure how that would have worked. Um, but at any rate, you're absolutely right. So they had this disagreement about the house. Um, Corey wanted to renovate it and sell it for a profit. Eric believes that the $2 million price tag was too expensive. It was unworthy of uh, investment. Um, They argued about it. And then in January of that year, Eric's business partner, Cody, receives a notification from their insurance company, letting him, uh, alerting him that Corey had accessed their accounts and removed Cody as a beneficiary, leaving herself as the sole recipient of Eric's policy, which you were highlighting before, kudos to the insurance call policy um, company for doing that. But it was um, actually the partner they reached out to, not. Yeah. Yeah, wow. which is standard protocol for insurance yeah. companies because they're not. They, they really don't want to get in litigation. Honestly, every time you, you you file a lawsuit with a life insurance company, if there's a way to settle it, they do. They're not trying to get involved. Imagine how many lawsuits litigate um, insurance companies are involved with at any one time. You know, th- so they take. They do take precautions, and certainly they did in this one to avoid litigation or, you know, whatever. Just keep them out of it. But, hey, just know that this is what happened. Um, At any rate, after being informed of the change, Eric and Cody, they swiftly reflected, uh, rectified the situation. They reverted the policy to its original terms. But the incident where Corey tampered with the life insurance policy without their knowledge, it raised significant concerns for Eric and Cody, his business partner. And it served as a clear warning and a glaring red flag about, hey, maybe she really is trying to do something. At any rate, Eric does not confront Corey about it. Um, reports suggest that he had contemplated the idea of getting a divorce. But again, he wants to maintain the peaceful environment for the children, which uh, proved to be a really bad decision. Uh, seeking support, Eric confides in his sisters about his concerns, and he appoints his sisters uh, his power of attorney on his policy. Um so, unbeknownst to Eric, while all of that was going on, back in December of 2021, early February of 2022, um, court documents revealed that Corey was in talks with a drug dealer who goes by the name of CL in police reports, um, who was known to law enforcement as being involved with drug-related activities, And according to the documents, Corey approaches CL requesting medication for an investor experiencing back problems. And she leaves money to house that she was flipping 
and then CL provides oxy, hydrocodone, per their arrangement, right? And then about two weeks later, she contacts him again. Uh, she wants something stronger, and she says, I want some of that Michael Jackson stuff, is what she said. And if you recall... That's wild. Back in 2009, the drug that she's referring to is propofol, because that's what Michael Jackson used to fall asleep, and he got an incorrect dosage, and it ended up killing him. Right. So she didn't get prof- profol. Instead, she got fentanyl, which is... Um, I think she asked for it. She asked specifically for fentanyl. At one mm-hmm. point, she did, but at mm-hmm. first, she goes to the, the Michael Jackson stuff. Um, and she did. You're right. You're right. And I think she must have been alluding to something, because propofol... I don't think that's an opioid. I think that's just, I don't know about that. But just well, propofol is used to, it's, it's used. Anesthesia? Yeah, it's an anesthetic. When you're undergoing surgery to make sure that you're really out and so you don't wake up for part of the surgical procedure. Um, I'm not exactly sure what category of drug. So if you were to ask be. for the Michael Jackson stuff, I think that she was kind of like subliminally like alluding to an overdose or like what happened to him was, you know, he died. Well, she definitely wanted something that was powerful and strong, um, regardless if she's trying to set up a uh, fentanyl, is what she specifically requests. It is an opioid pain medication, um, significantly more potent than morphine. Um, It's gained a lot of notoriety uh, due to its involvement in an ongoing epidemic with numerous overdose-related deaths um, occurring from daily illicit versions of the drug. All right, so she ends up purchasing about 15 to 30 pills of fentanyl from CL. Costs about 900 bucks. Um, I don't know. You just mentioned it was a confession. I'm not sure if it was a confession because she didn't intend um, any of that to get out, that she was purchasing 30 pills of fentanyl from CL and paying $900 for it. But if they find out about it, then it's certainly, um, what do you need fentanyl for? If you're not an active drug addict, which she was not by any account, <clears throat> then you must have uh, some other nefarious purpose for why we're purchasing such a thing. If they think that you have uh, poisoned your husband or there's suspicions that you are have actively tried to uh, poison your husband in the past, well, then, yeah, that's pretty damning bit of evidence. So let's go to February 14th, 2022, about a year ago, roughly, almost a year and a half now. So Corey prepares a meal for her and Eric to share It's on Valentine's Day. She makes him a sandwich, which may seem like an unconventional choice for a romantic evening. I mean, some might choose something else, like a surf and turf, steak and lobster, or I don't know. But, oh, yeah, here, Valentine's Day. Here's a sandwich. Thanks. I'd take it. (laughs) Um, At any rate. Eric later says that after consuming the sandwich, he feel he he fell feel blah he fell seriously ill, and this is what you had alluded, alluded to. Um, he immediately contacts his partner Cody and tells him that hey, she just made me a sandwich. I think she just tried to poison me. He's experiencing symptoms of uh, he broken out hives, difficulty breathing. Um, it, it, it resembled what happened to him in Greece, and then he had used one of his son's epinephrine pens. Um, that's usually employed for allergic reactions. He took some Benadryl, um, and despite his efforts, he eventually lost consciousness, which is pretty serious, Yeah, you know? 
Um, Eric confides in Cody and says that, look, Corey's trying to kill me. You know what it reminds me is it's like a, that movie uh, Throw Mama Off the Train or something. <laughs> You're trying to kill You're me. You're trying to kill me. <laughs> Willis or whatever his name is. Hey, he's trying Wilson, to kill me. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know. With uh, Danny DeVito. Yeah. <laughs> he poisoned her. He gave her the salted crackers, not the unsalted. The salted crackers make me choke. <laughs> I gotta watch that movie. That visual. Again. 1987. <laughs> <The> train. <laughs> <laughs> Throw Mama from the Train. Oh, it's a classic. Um, I made me watch my wife watch that a couple years ago. She's like, why do you like watching these old movies? Because they're hilarious. They're nostalgic to us for some reason. Because we oh. were watching them for whatever reason, but we were just laughing about it the whole time. Oh. Well, at any rate, so he's telling Corey, well, Cody, that Corey is trying to poison poison me. It's unmistakable. This has happened twice. I lost consciousness. I literally had to stab myself with an epinephrine pen um, to come back. Um, so a couple of weeks later, after that incident, court documents show uh, that Corey purchases another $900 worth of fentanyl. It was left for her to pick up at a bonfire pit at one of the homes in Midway that she was actively trying to flip. Um, Which is very, very, very shady. Why would you do that? What, leave drugs in a fire pit so you don't get arrested, obviously? It just seems weird. Why don't you just meet me at the house? And here's the thing. Like, you're really trying to separate yourself from that. Well, here's the thing. If a drug dealer named CL that the law enforcement knows about shows up at your door on your ring camera and hands you a baggie of 30 fentanyl pills, it's pretty damning evidence. So I understand the need for uh, secrecy and, oh, go to this uh, house that's unoccupied and uh, place the drugs in a... uh, Drug pit. I'm not saying it was the most professional of pickups and drop-offs, you know, but I understand why they thought they were, that was in their best interest to do something like that. So, a couple of weeks later, now here's here's the whole thing, and I'm not sure how much of this played into, because obviously it it appears, based on these facts, that Corey was trying to poison um, Eric a couple of years prior to this, but... Right before he dies, he wanted to make it look to Corey like he was going to go forward on that $2 million purchase of that mansion. So he was going to make an offer on the estate, um, that they, the one that they were talking about. And if when you do that, you have a contract. And all that's required is mere formalities to, you know, finish closing and all that kind of stuff. It usually requires, you know, stuff like um, disclosures and, you know, signing of documents or whatever. But you make an offer. You got a deal. I'm selling. You're buying. You've submitted your offer. I accepted. We have a contract. Then there's this 30-day period with the formalities. And I'm assuming that that's what they were going for. So he makes an offer. But he had no intention of following through. He just wanted to make it look to Corey like he was going to buy the house, which... Doesn't make a lot of sense to me if that was his purpose because, I mean, you're going to have to tell her that you didn't get the house anyway. Like, it's what was weird. the point of that? But that's how he chose to do it. Um, he confides in family uh, saying that he had no intention of buying that property. Um, at any rate, that, that was, he was always going to back out of the deal, but he wanted to make it look like he was going to buy the house. So in the early morning hours of March 4th, just days after Corey's second drug purchase, the one that we talked about with the drug pen, Eric is pronounced dead. And according to, according to Corey, 
she and Eric had been celebrating their upcoming acquisition of the mansion that they had bought on the night of March 3rd. It was around 9 p.m. She goes to the kitchen. She prepares a Moscow mule. Have you ever had one of those? Delicious. They're just, I don't like them. Um, it's made with Whiskey, vodka, ginger, ginger beer, beer. <laughs> lime. Um, yeah, not my cup of tea. Uh, but at any rate, she brings the drink, to, the drink to him, and she gives him a THC gummy. Um, brings it to him in bed, and then one of their sons wakes up from uh, a nightmare. She prompts Corey to go to his bed to help him fall asleep, and she claims that when that she unintentionally falls asleep while she's going to put her son to bed. Um, she wakes up around 3 a.m. and goes back to the bed with Eric. And it was then that she discovered that Eric's body is cold and lifeless. She calls 911 and informs the operator that she allegedly had tried to perform CPR. There's some problems with that. So the paramedics get there. And then there's these conflicting reports that emerged where uh, Eric's location in the bedroom uh, is inconsistent with somebody just dying in their sleep. He's like slumped over at the end of the bed. Um, he's either foot. He, he was either found at the foot of the bed or on the floor nearby, um, which adds to the confusion of everything, right? And so the discovery of a cold body in an unexpected position, it just doesn't align. Um, it's just not the typical sleeping arrangement. So obviously he was in distress. Either he was sick and he was slumped over or whatever, but he was just lying peacefully in his bed. As in, um, you would suspect, like in the movies or something. He didn't die in his sleep is the point. Um, despite Cody's assertion of administering CPR, uh, the paramedics report indicates that it was unlikely because Eric had blood coming from his mouth, um, foamy-type blood that you would see in a regular um, fentanyl overdose or like a, a heroin overdose, um, reminiscent of what you saw like in Pulp Fiction, which... Well, the way that they got that movie effect was with, uh, what do you call that, Tums? Alka-Seltzer or something. Alka-Seltzer, yeah. But that's generally what happens with a, you know, had this bloody foam coming out of his muscle. And if she had tried to do CPR, there would be blood on her. Evidence, yeah. Yeah. So unlike, bullshit, she did the CPR thing, right? So during the investigation, it's found out that he had a fatal level of street-level fentanyl, about five times lethal dose in his system. And when they questioned Corey about it, uh, she admitted uh, that he had a pain pill addiction during high school and claimed to be unaware of any drug use, whatever. So Eric's family, obviously, knowing uh, that Eric had been saying for the last couple of years that he thought that Corey was trying to poison him, didn't believe. It's multiple people. Multiple people. Yep. Yes. But then his, his family says that he... He was never into drugs, um, but then that, you know, f for her sake, just for you know, devil's advocate, if she claims that he had a pain pill problem during high school, I mean, some people do. I mean, sure, but but then nobody buys fentanyl. Fentanyl's like laced with things. You know, you're right. People don't buy fentanyl. The only people that are in contact with fentanyl are Drug dealers <laughs> mixing their stuff with it to make it stronger or nurses, you know, administering it like in a hospital setting. Um, fentanyl is, uh, it's been in the news. It's been politicized. It's linked with deaths. Everybody knows that. Um, but then when you hear nurses talking about it, no, I, I, I administer it to babies. It's like, oh, wow, I guess it, you know, 
It's one of the main anesthesias, ingredients in anesthesia. I'm really unfamiliar with uh, the legitimate use of why fentanyl is used by the medical profession, and I'm certainly unfamiliar with Another its thing, application though. to uh, street drugs. But yeah, continue. If you, were to, if you were to seek out fentanyl and you were doing it freely, you wouldn't have five times. You would have just a little bit too much. Yeah, well, five times is, is, is kind of the... the the red flag, yes, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah, it wasn't just like, oh, it it, it uh, had a bad chemical reaction with some Advil that I took. You know, it was, no, you either intentionally try to commit suicide or somebody was trying to kill you. A lethal intention. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, right. And then, obviously, they go through her phone. They find that she purchases on two occasions fentanyl. She didn't have a drug What did she habit. do with that first fentanyl? That's a good question. Maybe she tried to put it in a sandwich that one time. So that's kind of weird, too. Like, where did that And she miscalculated the dose. Go? Yeah, I'm not sure. And then, yeah, it's terrible. Maybe she tried to poison him on multiple occasions and he just yeah, didn't trust that, what she was giving him. This seems plausible. Yeah, and, and so at any rate, at any rate, so the day after, um, Corey hosts a gathering at their home uh, where she reportedly is drinking and celebrating the finalization of the house deal, right, that she thought that they were going to go through with. It was a mere... 24 hours after her husband dies, and, and Corey's focus is, remains fixated on this mansion that she wanted to, to flip. Um, the attendees at the gathering, including Corey's friends and one of Eric's sisters, uh, thought that her behavior was suspicious. So the following day, Corey requests that Eric's sister, Katie, leave the house space to allow her to grieve. After she was just celebrating and drinking and stuff and partying up, over the celebration of the acquisition of this match. She broke right? up. I mean, good for her because she's like, what the are you doing? Yeah, but this is where it gets interesting. So she asked her to leave because she wants to grieve, and Katie's has this really strong reaction, refuses to leave, expresses a determination uh, to ensure that Corey is removed from the home because obviously she's basically accusing her, I know that you killed my brother. This leads to a heated altercation between the two, resulting in Corey physically assaulting Katie and escalating <laughs> to the point where the police had to be called to intervene and break it up, right? So, Jeez. upon learning about Eric's decision, she finds out about Eric's decision to designate uh, the beneficiary strictly to his sister. Corey becomes aware, and then in response, files a claim against her late husband and his sister, standing in his place as he was a deceased defendant, alleging that Eric had defrauded her by transferring her transferring her portion of his assets without her knowledge, as outlined in their prenuptial agreement. I told you that that was coming. Um, Corey is suing for claims to Eric's estate as the prenup agreement stipulates that it would belong to her if he were to pass. Um, and additionally, she's seeking an additional 300000 to cover legal fees and costs. So you want to know what would be the death knell to those lawsuits? The fact that she murdered her husband. So that's where that's going to die. So in June 2022... Katie files a cross-lawsuit cross against Corey, um, and in her legal action, she references an ongoing investigation into her brother's suspicious death and asserts that the police were actively considering the possibility of it being a murder. Throughout the police investigation, Eric's family had maintained a relatively quiet stance, and they obviously they knew that the investigation was ongoing. They're not saying anything that's going to jeopardize anything. They're trying to play it cool. Um, they didn't want to hinder uh, the investigation, but Corey would soon embark on a campaign to portray herself as a compassionate, innocent, grieving wife um, and mother uh, posed with the challenges of coping with the loss of her husband. 
and the children's father. So that's when we get to the point where she's going to contact television networks and talk about the uh, television interview and all this kind of stuff. We're Those interviews were kind of weird too because they're even they didn't really know how to go about it. Like, so how did you go from grieving to writing this book? Tell me about it. Like, it's like they don't <laughs> even know what to ask. It's not really. It's kind of funny. Yeah, no, I, I, it was it's an not awkward. Funny, but, yeah. I'm not familiar with a lot of daytime television. I mean, it was kind of like a thing back in the '90s, early 2000s. Um, it's not really a. I'm not sure how relevant it is in the early 2020s now, but obviously they still have an audience. So yeah, but it was this corny cheeseball interview, um, straight up late 90s style that that you would expect to see. Um, anyway, the course of that investigation, uh, the police had been quietly conducting their investigation. And during the course of their inquiry, they request access to Corey's phone on the night, the night of Eric's passing. Now, Corey claims that she had left her phone uh, charging by their bedside when she had went to go help her son go back to sleep. But the phone records revealed activity on her phone. We saw this in the Murdoch case where, hey, that GPS tracker on your cell phone is really, really accurate in terms of location. I mean, if you go from one bedroom to the next, it, it can be tracked. Yeah. Uh, maybe not from one nightstand to the other nightstand, or maybe it can, but definitely bedroom to bedroom. Yeah. Like within 30 feet. Yeah, definitely. They'll track that. Um, phone records reveal activity on her phone, including a conversation with an individual and a deleted text message, as well as movement of the phone during the time she claimed that she was asleep next to her son. The investigators considered the inconsistencies in Corey's account and regarding her uh, attempt at CPR and the positioning of Eric's body, which didn't uh, align with her claims. And most significantly, they discovered deleted messages between Corey and the drug dealer, CL, which is kind of like, okay, well, we're going to arrest you now. Um, They they obviously found the the discussion of them discussing the drug purchases and the completion of the transactions and all of that. So the police bring her in to um, they bring in CL, the drug dealer, for interrogation. He admits wholeheartedly uh, that he sold the fentanyl to Corey, um, and it's not really explicitly stated in the available information. It's possible uh, that they reached an immunity deal with him because they weren't, all right, look, you sell fentanyl. You know it, I know it. I don't give a shit about you. Tell me what you know about Corey. You'll get immunity. Maybe that's how it went down. But anyway, he he was not arrested or anything. She uh, goes on um, this uh, television tour of sorts to talk about her book. She writes a book uh, that capitalizes on the emotional turmoil experienced by the children after the loss of a parent. So using it as inspiration, she publishes this book, um, there's a, there's a, a number of different reasons why this happening happens. I suspect, here's my take on it. If you are currently under police investigation, the move is to not do anything to bring attention to yourself and to stay quiet, right? Mm-hmm. If they don't have anything, then they don't have anything, and I'm not going to give them extra by putting stuff out there. So I'm not sure if she was aware of the depth of the investigation that was that, the, that they were looking into with her. I don't think that she was aware that they had, she, they had talked to CL, her drug dealer. Um, I think that she was counting on the life insurance money to fund her for the next, however long. 
and she didn't have access to it because of the litigation and because she was no longer a beneficiary and all of these things. And so maybe in an attempt to gain supplemental income to continue with, uh, you know, her business of flipping houses and all these other things, she says, hey, what if I just write a child's book? I got a perfect ready-made script. I could just say that I lost my husband unexpectedly, and in, in order to find a way to help my children cope, um, I wrote them this book, and, you know, it was this great experience, this great moment. I go on TV, and people will buy it, which was a ballsy move because the, the, the networks could have just said no. I'm not letting you advertise a book. There's lots of books out there um, that talk about how to deal with grief and all these things. Why would yours be any different? But it was a compelling story, and it, you know she was charismatic enough. She makes her way into uh, this place, and well, she she the, the rest is kind of history. So her book was titled "Are You With Me." She actively promotes through various news outlets, uh, and um, she's interviewed. And during these interviews, she's discussing her family's story, omitting the details where she uh, was accused allegedly of taking of being responsible for her husband's death. Uh, she claims that she wrote the book with her sons to help them process emotions surrounding their father's passing. She presents the book as a means to remember Eric and his enduring presence in their lives, emphasizing that even though he was no longer physically present, his spirit would always be with them. Well, isn't that nice? That was the general gist of it. And in her book, she introduces the three C's. She calls connection, continuity and care, which is get out of here with all of that. You just literally just made that up, pull it out of your ass. Um, but they were meant to assist the children in coping with the loss of a parent, um, whatever to that. So the TV show that she goes on, the most prominent one is uh, ABC Four's good thing is Utah. She goes on April 6th. So husband has been dead for about a month, about a month. And, um, well, it would have been about a year. I believe this is April 6th of this year. Uh, the first red flag. So we're going we're gonna to take a look at her interview, but the red flags that behavioral analysts have picked up on, including a couple that I've seen on YouTube. Oh, yeah, like the facial ones and stuff. Well, they say that um, as the topic shifts to her husband, her demeanor drastically changes. She has this open and relaxed posture, and then it stiffens. Her eyes dart away. Um, she avoids eye contact. She begins to fidget with her bracelet, um, where previously her, her speech was very fluid. The second red flag was that she had an excessive use of distancing language when speaking about her husband's death. Uh, she mm. rarely used the word I or we when speaking about the incidents. She's uh, uh, opting for phrases like one might think or people say, um, which is distancing language, according to many behavioral analysts. Um, and then there was an, an incongruity uh, between her words and her emotional expression. She was very robotic. Um, I don't want to call it sociopathic, but it was just void of the grief that she's claiming that she was experiencing. Yeah. But at any rate, I think that we should take a listen to this interview um, from the point where she comes on. Let's take a listen. So you actually wrote this book with your children. I did. Mm -hmm. And it's only been a year. How did you process and say you th go from processing death to I need to write a book and help others? 
You know, I just watched the struggle that my kids were going through. And I actually, you know, I went on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and trying to find something that we could use to cope at nights. Nights are the hardest, it seems like, for everybody when, you know, dealing with anything. But I just wanted some story to read to my kids at night. And I just could not find anything. I couldn't find anything that really, you know, suited them or helped them find comfort and peace. And so, you know, I was like, let's just write one. Mm. Right. Crazy emails at times. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a snippet of the interview. And um, I don't know her explanation there about... Well, you know... I, I couldn't I, uh... find any books on grief, and so I wrote <laughs> my own. It's like, I don't know. That doesn't make a... I, I don't know what you would call that, but one would call it bullshit. There's a tons there's tons of books out there, you know. It seems as though if she was being genuine, she would say, you know, I was thinking about my husband and I wanted to do something to memorialize him. Not, that would be more, yeah, that would make a lot not, more sense. Than, the thing is, it's like, here with us, oh, uh, there's, um, is dad here with you in the school hall? Well, no, he's not. He's not. The thing is, he's not. We don't know, I don't know how religious she is and how she feels about ghosts, but... It's basically a lie. It's like he's not there because you killed him. I think she's kind of like, you know, <laughs> wants something to read to her yeah. kids. Be like, no, he's here. But no, you have a disregard for life. You try to kill him like four times or however many times. You bought this fentanyl. You're shady. Like, just I don't feel genuineness coming from this book. Well, just, you know, um, there's, a, there's, there's a coldness there. There is, I, I can see the detachment part of it. I'm not sure if she looks like she's camping or not, but she's she is she's all bundled up. Well, you're um, on TV. I mean, like, I mean, she looks she looks totally fine. I mean, she's a beautiful girl. She can do no wrong. But like, that's not really a coat you're gonna wear on TV. You know, you look like you're part of, um, you know, the crew or something. Or you're just you're just. It's just. It's it's. I think it would be hard to get past producers without them trying to touch you up for TV. You know, to actually be in the shot. Yeah. You know, she'd be like, no, 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 this is what I'm wearing. This is the way my hair is going to be, and I'm going for that look. This is her pink dress, I think, in court. I'm innocent. I'm a widow. Here's a children's book. Believe me. I don't know. Do you think that she appeared to be sympathetic in that interview, the way that she was portrayed? She's trying to convince herself or her children or she's trying to the universe she's trying to put it off of her it feels like yeah well the the, the distancing thing right yeah so here's how it all unravels for her um while she was promoting her book Corey tells her friends and family that eric died of a brain aneurysm but eric's family was aware that that was not the case and um well, you know, that she was already un under investigation. Her book starts climbing the charts of uh, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and um, these places, and it's doing really well. She's making a lot of money. It's granting her attention and financial success, assumingly. And, but on May 8th of 2023, Corey is arrested, and she's arrested for felony first-degree murder in relation to her husband, Eric's death. Uh, she faced... She's facing three counts of possession of a controlled substance with intent to distribute and possession of GHB, also known as the date rape drug, um, along with first-degree murder. 
And it hasn't really been disclosed whether or not Eric had those substances in his system, but we do know that he died of a fentanyl overdose. Um, she's been held without bond. Um, she had her initial May uh, 19th court appearance. Um, she's not getting out of jail anytime soon. She's a flight risk, obviously. So, obviously, now that she's been arrested, um, here we are. And we, we don't have a trial yet. We don't have a trial date set. There's going to be this whole process about what happens to her uh, preliminary hearings, um, you know, to see if she's going to be held to answer. But right now, the compelling evidence seems to be, from what I was able to gather, was they know it was a fentanyl overdose. They know that she purchased the drugs. She knows They know her drug dealer. They have records of the transactions. Um, and they have a victim whose behavior is wildly inconsistent with a fentanyl self-inflicted drug overdose. So she has defenses, certainly, because this is wildly going, this is really going to be a circumstantial case. Um, there, there, it's not like, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of physical evidence there. Um, there obviously, the DNA is going to be irrelevant. She slept in the same bed with him. Um, it's whether or not she purchased narcotics with the intent of bringing about her husband's demise. That's the circumstantial case that they're going to have to make. Um, it's captured the media because, oh, my God, the children's book and you killed your husband? Wow, you know? And, and yeah, it's a compelling story. But the, the reality of it all is that um, the, the, the criminal case is not as simple as it seems. Like, we talked about Lori Vallow, you know, the, the other case that we just did a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And um, the circumstances about her case, about she was in this Mormon cult and she had all of these wild religious ideologies and she thought her children were demons. Um, but there was not any physical evidence that suggested that she committed the murders herself. That case was a little different because they talked about um, her conspiracy to murder her children. And all they had to do was prove that she had a conspiracy or a plan and she moved in furtherances and furtherances in furtherance of the conspiracy, right? This case is different. They're going to have to prove that she purchased the drugs um, for an illicit purpose with a specific purpose of making him overdose, meaning they got to prove that it wasn't accidental. They got to prove that he didn't find the drugs himself and ingest them himself. They got to prove that he didn't have um, a drug addiction himself. They didn't. They had to prove. They, they got to prove a number of different things. Well, they don't have to prove the defenses, but that's those are going to be some of her defenses. I don't know. What do you think of all that? I mean, it doesn't look good that she lied. She lied about the phone. Who was she texting? There was an alleged affair, a long-term affair. Which we, we didn't even talk we about. We don't know who that is. Yeah. And, you know, that'll come out eventually. Um, While she was looking at wedding dresses. Who was the investor? What, I mean, if you're doing business with people, you're not going to give them drugs. Or, like, if they're looking for fentanyl, you know, tell them to go get it themselves. I don't know. Most people that look for drugs that are not drug addicts, look for lighter stuff than fentanyl. They don't just go straight to fentanyl-laced heroin. And so... That's, like, literally, like, the highest part of the most drugs that somebody can do, or, like, the white, like, you know, I'm like... I mean, it's powerful stuff. One, one whiff of fentanyl. I mean, police officers have died from accidentally breathing in the fumes. And and so it's, uh, yeah, it's... It, it, th- there's a lot going on there. You know, we don't know about the night terrors, you know. I mean, I don't know how many times there was a history of that. 
Does she go and sleep there? Which actual position was he found in? Was it at the foot of the bed? Was did she, you know, was she lying about giving him CPR? She was definitely lying about giving him CPR. And but how do you even prove that? You can't. If you enter escrow into a house, um, knowing that you're not going to do it, did she find that out that she, he had no intention of going through? Well, there, there's um that aspect clothes? of the story. It, it almost doesn't really matter. And then throw a party for the closing party, and then the sister come and bust yeah. it up, being like, "You're an asshole!" Like my brother just died, and she she ended the party. There's so many negatives about it. Do you remember the um, Casey Anthony case? And how they said that, you know, when there's pictures of her going to the clubs and partying up, that it was, you know, one of the many stages and ways that people can manifest grief. But that was after many, a significant time period had passed between her daughter's passing. It almost seems more. Those images. Yeah, I don't know. It's, 24 hours, like the soon. same day? I don't know, man. I don't know. Um, holding a, a family gathering and celebrating the acquisition of a house when your husband died less than 24 hours later. Seems pretty damning on a lot of different levels. I'll just say this. I've been in front of many juries. Jurors are um, really smart. Collectively, they're very smart. And that's not going to make sense to most of the jurors. Perhaps if the people at the party didn't know of her husband's passing, that might fly because maybe you're not ready to talk about it. You're not ready for it to be real. But if everybody knows your husband just died... Well, there was family there. His Eric's family was there. They knew. So I'm not sure how far. And again, we we're, we're speculating because we don't know. And everybody all knew of that the they facts. didn't want it to close and like legality between that. Well, it's, it's Eric's family knew that, you know. So there was certainly motive. Like, what was the motive for it? Well, if obviously, it happens to me. She did it. Yeah, I mean, the motive is already is written into the prenup. I get all of his shit if he dies. That's you know that, and so significant assets worth millions of dollars. His share of the business. Um, it seems like she had no regard for life. I mean, she tr if they find out that she was actually having an affair with somebody, and the reason why people are saying that is because it makes sense, just as a conceptual. Did you say she um, was idea. looking for wedding dresses. Well, they checked her search history, and she was looking at um, like wedding lingerie, wedding wedding dresses, or something to that effect. When she's been married for like eight nine years, could have been for a friend. I don't know. That's what people say, but I don't know. Uh, which friend was getting married? You know, yeah. that's it's gotta be a I close friend and be buying the I wouldn't be looking for wedding dresses for you. <laughs> <laughs> I wanna be it's like when my friends are getting married, like, I don't I don't know. You're gonna have to look at your own wedding dresses. I'm not in. I'm not in. I'm out. I don't get that whole thing anyway. Oh, we're gonna go try on bridesmaids' dresses and like is, they make like a whole thing about it. I just I'm not I watched that movie Bridesmaids, you know that whole scene. <laughs> like why is that even like a thing to do? But it is, you know, and I guess. Um Man, honestly, I mean this I when I got really married, we weren't going, kids. Oh, we're gonna go do a tux fitting. It's like no, fit your own tux. No electricity <laughs> side. Uh we're all <laughs> and I did. Yes, you did. <laughs> That is exactly what we did. <laughs> Let the gay pick. <laughs> hey, we looked good. Yeah, it was. But um, so that's all we have for you today. We've been going for about an hour 25. It's going to be a little short, shorter with editing and all. But um, that is the Corey Richens case as of what we know right now. And where we're going with that, I am certain there's going to be a myriad of details that come out um, in the coming months. Uh, as we lead up to an inevitable trial 
on this case. There's no way this case is pleading out. There's just no way. There's no chance. There's no chance. She's facing life. I don't see any deal that's going to be short of you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. There's enough evidence there for her to put up a viable defense. Um, we just have to see how the evidence comes out. So, yeah, this is going to be a trial and one that we track very closely. Um, one of the many cases that we've been tracking. Um, so we will see. In the meantime, uh, for all of you guys that have made it this far, thank you so much for watch, uh, listening or watching. If you're watching on the YouTube, thank you for watching, listening, which is what I would prefer if I were a listener um, as I'm doing other things. But thank you for making it uh, the full show with us. We really do appreciate that. Um, next week, we are going to be talking about the attorney that was just convicted of murdering his mom. And we're going to give you a prime example. I did a whole show um, a week ago or two weeks ago about why you shouldn't talk to the cops. I should probably do another one about why it's a really bad idea to testify in your own defense um, if you're actually guilty of a crime because it's going to be obvious. Um, we're going to get into some of those details next week. But at any rate, um, for all of you out there, uh, keep your family members close. Stay safe out there. Make sure you keep your doors locked because it's a crazy world and you just don't know when your life is about to change. Um, we will see you guys next week. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to the entire podcast. We really do appreciate that. And as always, you can find us on YouTube on the Tilted Lawyer Podcast YouTube channel or on your podcast carrier of choice. If you feel we've presented anything of value, please leave a five-star rating, like, and subscribe. We always appreciate that kind of thing. And we do look forward to seeing you all again live every Thursday at 3 in the afternoon. We love you all. Take care. Bye-bye.